Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And welcome to this special edition of Geek Town Radio. As I mentioned last week, we are off for the holidays, of course, but I had quite a lot of interviews I'd done in December, and uh, I thought with people driving up and down the country to see family, you might want something that you can listen to while you're on your travels. So uh, I've got a couple of interviews that I did throughout December, and I wanted to put them out for you. So this is going to be a purely interview show. We've got two people we're talking talking to. The first one is Anthony Willis, who is the composer for the new short in the How to Train Your Dragon franchise. And the second person we're talking to is the production designer on the movie Code 8. The first person we're talking to, as I mentioned, is Anthony Willis. He's a British composer. He's based in LA now. He was a chorister at the Windsor Music School, which means that he's sung for the Queen and people like that. So that's where he sort of started. He eventually kind of became a full-blown composer. He's now based out in LA. Whilst over there, he's worked extensively with John Powell, who is the person behind the Oscar-nominated score for the original How to Train Your Dragon. He's worked on uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Wreck-It Ralph, Jason Bourne, uh, Despicable Me, all doing work with with John Powell. This new short, which is now out, you can get it on the Sky Store right now and uh, various other places on disc. It's uh, How to Train Your Dragon Homecoming. It's set 10 years after How to Drain Your Dragon Hidden World. It opens with Hiccup and Toothless sharing stories of their special relationship with their respective families as they prepare for the Snoggle Tog Festival, uh, which sounds adorable and very Christmassy if you uh, want to settle down with that. It's it's a 30-minute little short, uh, and as I say, you can get it on the Sky Store right now. So we talked to Anthony Willis about composing the music for How to Train Your Dragon Homecoming and uh, how it was following in the footsteps of his mentor John Powell. We also talk a little bit about some of the other work. Uh, he's also composed for video games and one of the things that he composed for was Fortnite where he composed some of the music for seasons 6, 7 and 8. So we talk a little bit about that as well. Here's the interview with Anthony Willis. I'll see you afterwards for the next interview. <laughs> 
it's lovely to be able to sit down and talk with you anyway. You're based in LA. You're clearly English. <laughs> really, the main thing we're, we're here to talk about is how to train your dragon homecoming, which is the first time you're actually composing this, because you've, you've done the how to train your dragon stuff with John Powell previously, and you've done additional music with him, but this is the first one where you're you're kind of on as the main composer for the whole thing. Uh, yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. How was it coming back on to this, but being given the opportunity to do it entire yourself, given the fact the original How to Train Your Dragon was nominated for an Oscar, so <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah, no pressure. No, it was the coolest thing and the kindest thing of John to give me that opportunity and pretty surreal because it is, as you said, I mean, it's the music for these features that John scored are some of the really the best scores in a way sort of ever but but certainly in the last 20 years they're really yeah some of the most incredible kind of synthesis of quite a contemporary orchestral sound and also a very classic one so um and that's what john is is known for and love for and that was a massive privilege even a small television short but but nonetheless i wanted to make sure i did my absolute best to bring the best i could in tribute to john and what i've learned from him and how i feel about what he's done for those features so yeah it was certainly like a a daunting challenge but you know at the same time i also you know i wasn't redefining or reinventing the wheel i you know i was stepping into something that has an established tone and established way of supporting the characters that said of course you know this takes place 10 years after the conclusion of the hidden world so it definitely does have its own new requirements and so that was really fun to actually have a bit of space to to do that when it comes to approaching the music for this how are you expanding and and adding to that original score are you still using some of the original elements i guess but then you've you've got to grow that into something else as well so how are you approaching that yeah very much so i was very lucky to spot the film with john and the wonderful director tim johnson who in fact john's very first animated film in hollywood was ants which he scored with harry Gregson williams and of course they also did chicken run and they did even more famously shrek together now Mm. like that sort of animation partnership which really set the kind of massively sort of defined the style of dreamworks animation scoring i mean of course originally started by hans with the prince of egypt right but really you know john and harry kind of pushed the envelope on how those animations were scored and obviously Harry took on Shrek and John took on uh, Kung Fu Panda with Hans and then House Chain and Dragon. The point being that to be working with Tim was in itself incredible because, you know, he was there right at the beginning as one of the directors on Amps. Mm. Anyway, so we spotted the film and John was sort of like the Yoda or, or you know, the, the stoic fatherly character. He really gave us some, some great wisdom into how, if he was scoring it, how he would go about it. And one of his ideas was to have a new memory theme. Right. Being a part of John's team on the features, I've always been amazed by it. not only does he have these incredible themes from his original movies but he has this way of finding the new emotional aspect of the story he you know he'll find a new theme and it took me by surprise a bit on dragon 2 i was Mm. thinking well yeah everybody loves your first score aren't you just going to do kind of reprises of that but to actually respect those original themes and the scenarios that they're applied to having new themes for the new emotional elements is, is actually the most impactful way of kind of freshening up the storytelling so we did exactly that for this and we had a new theme for memory which was a you know real challenge to 
compose, but I, you know, I did it in such a way as to try to evoke the spirit of John's themes and obviously in a very nostalgic way. Mm. And so that's the emotional core of the score. It sort of weaves its way through every cue almost, but then it has to sort of fit and work with references to the original themes, which because of the plot, there's a retelling of the history of Dragon One. Right. So that we called for some quite fun references to the Dragon One score as well. Overall, there's a lot to balance. And of course, the new characters, the baby Night Lights or baby Night Furies who are part Light Fury, part Night Fury, you know, they needed their uh, own music as well. So there's a lot of new stuff and there's a lot of references to the classic PAL themes as well. When you're looking for new music, are you composing more for events or characters when you're looking for kind of themes and stuff? Do you tend to, to air towards sort of composing around characters or particular events in the film or is it just a general feeling that you're going for? That's a great question. One of the, the really elegant things I've learned from John is that he generally were on the side of attaching themes to thematic aspects of the story, such right. as lots, freedom, love, friendship, as opposed to specifically, you know, Zephyr's theme or Hiccup's theme. Right. And it's a really elegant, I think, a really elegant and classy way of doing it. It was interesting watching John work on Solo where he very much applied that thematic prescription to things. And and in a way, it was interesting to see that versus John Williams, who's actually, in a way, a little more direct with his theme, certainly in the Star Wars. Um, yes. I mean, they're very much, very, 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 very clear leitmotif. And John uh, John Powell has a slightly more sophisticated way of doing it, which I, I think is obviously not to belittle the, the master John Williams. <laughs> of course, no. Phenomenal. <laughs> but I think JP's sort of approach is really interesting. And so that's, that's really what we applied here so you know having a theme for memory as opposed to specifically a theme for a new character or really i mean the night lights their theme was really more for mischief and adventure right than specifically for them yeah so you know i took on a similar thematic uh approach although of course i mean you know the fact that this is only a 30 minute special means that there's less space to really develop the themes in the way that you would in a feature yes so in some ways had to be a little bit more on the nose with the appearances of the themes yeah well i was going to say how is it working on something which is is so compressed like that of you know this is a what a 30 minute thing compared to something like a feature i mean on the one hand i think tim did a really lovely job at honoring the feature in that there are these sequences that are just animation and music telling the story you know mm. you've got a good minute and a half stretch in certain areas of just that to tell the story which was really cool on the other hand yes it is very very compressed compared to feature and that's hard because one of the things the score wants to do is to provide some cohesion and bind it all together so i look for ways to do that whether it's at that moment actually rather than diving off into a new key keep it in the same key, keep the tempo going to create more of a montage feel when you're cutting back to something very quickly rather than, oh, now we're in a new place. We have to sort of make everybody realize they're in a new place. It was like, well, actually they can see that it's quite it's quite evident yeah but let's allow the music to bind it together and allow them to keep things sort of integrated so yeah it was i mean definitely you find yourself working hard on a queue and you're like well, how long was that queue oh it was 42 seconds you're like jeez wow that's, that's uh, <laughs> felt like a lot more but there's an old expression that in animation you have to turn on a dime you have to be mm. able to 
very quickly change into a new cube, but without sort of raising a big flag and going, hey, everybody, I'm changing to a new idea. Mm. You know, you want to do it in a way that feels very inevitable and smooth. Certainly when you're coming to animation over live action, I think something like that, that, that sort of quick change is probably a lot more prominent. When you're composing for animation versus live action, is there a huge difference for you on how you approach it? I think there is. I mean, I think that, you know, the expectation with animation and stylistically the expectation that a lot of those films sort of set up where you've got very vivid colors and you've got larger than life characters and very elaborate locations and there's a fast rate of activity within the film itself yeah to go along with that ride i think there's an expectation for the score to follow suit whereas you know the live action by default a lot of it directors are looking to achieve as much realism as they can in certain situations where music really wants to be as as subtle as possible. Yeah. That said, I think some of the really cool animation, going back to John's score for Dragon One, one of the most popular musical tracks called Forbidden Friendship, it has a very contemporary feel to it rather than a very classic animation sound. It's got a very minimal opening that obviously builds into this enormous emotional payoff, but it's wonderfully contemporary and classic at the same time. So I think that rhetorically, as soon as you impose a very traditional way of doing something on a scene in a score you're, you're immediately telling the audience to watch it in reference to that and so i think that you're actually potentially depriving the film of the opportunity to be something different i think you know there's a lot to learn from live action scoring and you know i mean you just have to look at some of the song placements that they put in for example the into the spider-verse yeah you know and it's very cool and contemporary and i think that there's something to learn from that yeah definitely when it comes to doing something like this obviously it's a short and i would guess has a much lower budget than a feature do you still have access to live orchestras and stuff or are you using uh, samples to put this together or is it sort of a mix of both that's a great question yes although there's a huge prestige to how to train your dragon and the how to train your dragon music it isn't budgeted the way the features are <laughs> yeah so you know i mean it just lives in a very different world and i suppose i have to be grateful for that because that gave me the opportunity to score it however early on i basically got on with the score as early as i could to impress dreamworks with the direction for the music and the new themes and the director tim and dreamworks basically felt that yeah they should really honor not only what i was trying to do but really the precedent that john had started with these wonderful scores and we got a session over at very much the home of dragon scores at, at air in london and we went over and recorded the strings and winds so that you know took some work to get there but it was wonderful to be able to do that yeah that in turn enabled a, a soundtrack release and that's been a really cool thing to see fans so consuming the score in a similar way that they have john scores and adding it to their playlists of dragon music so it just shows that there's no substitute in a, in a film like this for a live orchestra yeah that's awesome and the score seems to be going down brilliantly well with people talking about it on social media and stuff they seem to be very happy with it uh homecoming is out on sky store over here and it's out on disc so it's all over the place so you can go and get it oh cool weirdly it seems to be more expensive to rent than it is to buy on the sky store i have no idea why that is <laughs> it 
experience the novelty, yes. special experience that it's going to disappear from your. Yes, it's your very. TV. It's the urgency. You got to watch it. You it, can't put a price on that. Yes, it's very bizarre. Yeah. So, talking just a couple of your the other things you've been involved with. You've also worked on video games. You did Knack Two and uh, Fortnite, though the last few seasons of Fortnite, or six, seven, and eight. I'm not sure what season they're on now. But how did you end up on that, which has become this huge monolith of a thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm very lucky to be supported by a really wonderful agent who also works with Pinoto Prak and Marco Beltrami, who scored the original game. Right. Obviously, the format for something like this is enormous and it has so many levels and expansions. And I mean, I suppose that's one of the things that's made Fortnite so exciting for its fans and its users who it's constantly evolving. Yeah. So that's called for new music, which was really cool for me to be able to do. And so I scored one of the favorite ones I did was actually this time last year, I did the holiday season. So there's a lot of holiday music, Fabulous. Um, which was kind of a challenge because it's quite, I mean, the, the overall tone of the Fortnite music is fairly heroic and, and quite serious in a fun way but it's quite for want of a better word it's quite masculine music yes so it was quite fun to sort of add it and challenging actually to add a christmas so holiday feel to it but, um, <laughs> yeah but that went that went down really well with, with the fans and and uh, so i was asked to do some music for the plankerton so there's a very beautiful autumnal area that they opened up and that was uh, that was in season eight and that was lovely i got to work with tina guo who's a fantastic cellist and yeah we did some really nice uh, surprise! I mean, it was really cool. The audio team at Epic Games are, are really cool, and they, you know, in spite of the obviously the genre of the video game, they really push to see the kind of music that their fans are gonna like. Mm. So they allowed me to write some cello music that I'm, I'm really proud of. So, so yeah, very cool to be involved in that. Very cool to be involved in Dragons, and obviously a lot of additional music gigs I've been involved with. Having moved here ten years ago, I never thought I'd get to be a part of all these things. So I'm very lucky. The franchise is. The additional music stuff is is insane. I mean, it's like Pirates of the Caribbean, Jason Bourne, the Despicable Me franchise, Jumanji you've done recently, uh, Solo, of course, working with both John Powell and John Williams. Just an amazing selection of stuff. Oh, Wreck-It Ralph as well, more animated stuff. Do you have a preference particularly of, of working on live action or video games or animation? I think I've done more family movies at least, which I think the, the relationship in music between a, a family movie, aesthetic and animation is quite similar. Mm. And it's hard to beat, to be honest, living in that world where you can really wear your heart on your sleeve and a lot is expected from the music and it's great to be able to go for it and not hold back. That said, I think there's a really cool grace to being more minimal and there's a discipline to stretching out music and, and making it simpler and, you know, integrate a little more subtly into a movie. So I'd love to do more live action as well. I mean, I'm, I think that any score requires the same discipline. It's just ascertaining what colors are going to really support it yeah and once you establish those colors there still requires an interplay and a relationship between them and a grace to the arranging mm. and you you know you can see that in in john's work too i mean from born through to how to train a dragon it's such a wide change stylistically but the grace with which he executes it is very similar and that's something i've learned from him and something i really hope to turn my hand to with, with any project that i'm hard on that sort of neatly brings me on to my last couple of questions really which are they're always the same we always ask the same things to everybody for the final two so the first one is what tv shows are you watching at the moment oh gosh the answer is that i actually watch a lot of tv because my girlfriend works in she's a, a developer exact to epics oh, right. um, 
Netflix, so they've got some really cool shows, and she's mm. constantly. Mm. I watched almost no TV before I met her, and now I'm constantly sort of aware. She'll chime in something for work, and I'll get into it, and she'll be ready to move on because she's sort of seen enough. And I'm like, no, but that was getting good. So <laughs> I do watch a lot, but gosh, what have I seen recently? Well, obviously Game of Thrones. Yes, I love The Crown. It's a seriously guilty pleasure, partly because I grew up singing for the royal family at, at Windsor, and yeah, all these things that my parents didn't tell me that I'm now finding out. Which, <laughs> Um, but it's, it, I mean, really, it's just a beautifully made show, beautifully shot. And actually, a friend of mine, a director I've just worked with, Emerald Fennell, is playing the uh, Camilla Parker Bowles in it. So I have even more investment in that. And I love The Crown. So good. Yes. And really nice score, actually. I, I haven't done any TV, but I would like to. Yes. Well, that does bring me on to the last question, actually, is if you had the opportunity to work on any TV show, it can be something from the past, something present or something future, which show would it be? Oh, that's a hard one. I'd love to do Lord of the Rings. Yes. I mean, that's a hard one because that's, I mean, again, similar in prestige to what John did in the Dragon movies. Those Howard Shaw's scores are, mm. they're not even film scores. They're like a full library of mythological yeah. uh, album music. And, and uh, it's really amazing what he did. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do, actually, speaking of Phil, this is completely the opposite end of the spectrum. I really like Phil Eisler's score for Unreal. Have you seen Unreal? Oh, yes. Unreal was one of those shows that I really didn't think that I was going to kind of watch but I know Phil reasonably well we've interviewed him like five or six times and I knew he was coming on and this was the new th- yeah when he was the new thing he was doing I was like oh do I really want to see something about like a drama about a bachelor like TV I'm not going to like this completely addicted for the entire run of it it's amazing that show yeah it's so good and he did a really cool job at parodying yes TV dating music and so that adds to the comedy a lot and uh, I love that and also, but also actually some of the drama music's really good so I'd love to do a show like that I mean I think he did an awesome job with that yeah um, and then back to the other end of the spectrum they're doing some Narnia related TV shows I'd love to do one of those because that's I mean that's a world I'm very comfortable in in terms of choral fantasy it's very much in my bones whereas you could hire me for a funk score but there's plenty of kids and I certainly give it my best shot but there's plenty of kids who've grown up in LA playing funk breathing yeah. funk yeah. and they're going to just crush that whereas I'd like to think that I would similarly I'd crush the more choral fantasy uh, kind of uh, genres yeah they have got a Lord of the Rings series coming and you're right they've got a whole bunch of Narnia things coming because Netflix bought the rights to like all the Narnia stuff I seem to remember so uh, there are the shows out there <laughs> indeed so you know pursuits for 2020 and beyond but no yeah. it's been a really cool year I've been really lucky it's a lot of work as I know, I'm sure you know from speaking to other composers you, you yeah you know it's really rewarding I think the best bit really is when things come out and you see everybody's reaction. And as soon as you amplify things out to millions of people, there's going to be people that don't like your work or think somebody else should have done it or things should be better. But for the most part, it's really cool to see people, just the enthusiasm that fans of film and film music have for the stuff you work on. And that's why we, that's a big reason we do it really. So it's a really wonderful industry to work in. Yeah, yeah. Well, have you got anything else coming up that you uh, want to mention? Yeah, I mean, I just scored this really wonderful film by Emerald Fennell called Promising Young Woman which is going to be premiering at Sundance and uh, Emerald's absolutely brilliant she's come up I mean she's a very established actress in her own right but also an established writer she was the showrunner for Killing Eve season 2 and she's a good friend of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and so she made her first feature and, and it's going to be definitely 
Making Waves at Sundance, I think, is a very interesting film and a lot of fun to write music for it. So I'm really excited about that. That's a big thing for me. It's certainly the first big feature I've scored mm. that's got a lot of star power. It's got Kerry Mulligan, Bo Burnham. So that's going to be really cool. And uh, yeah, so definitely be going to Sundance for that. And then I'm working on a beautiful animation called Hump, which is it's a sort of How to Train Your Dragon style movie of friendship, but it's set in Arabia. Oh, right. We haven't really had any cool Arabian kids movies at least that I know about, certainly not involving camels. <laughs> so I think that's going to be really exciting. That sounds like it's going to be fun. I like, like that. Yes, hump camels makes sense. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, good luck with everything. Hope it all goes brilliantly. Hopefully we can talk again in 12 months when you've done some other bits and pieces and uh, we'll uh, chat again. Yeah, that would be brilliant. I'd absolutely love that. Cool. Talk to you soon. Thanks, yeah. Bye. Bye. So that was the interview with Anthony Willis. Hope you enjoyed that one. As I said, the How to Train Your Dragon Homecoming short you can now get on Sky Store. You can also get on disc as well if you uh, go and look around on Amazon or other places, you know, the usual places to go and get that sort of stuff. The next interview we have is with Chris Crane, who is the production designer on Code 8. Uh, Code 8 is something that you may or may not have heard about. There is actually a short called Code 8. You may be very aware of it if you are a fan of Stephen Amell and Robbie Amell, because it is primarily a project which they've been exec producers on and been very much behind from the beginning. Robbie did the short originally, which you can go and watch right now on YouTube. I'll also link it in the post on the website as well. Stephen is also in the film as well. So if you're a fan of Arrow, then it's, this is definitely something you should go and watch. The movie is out now. You can get it on Amazon. You can go and buy it on there. I'm sure it's available on other places as well, but I will link to it on Amazon on the site. Code 8 is set in a world where 4% of the population are born with varying supernatural abilities, but instead of being superheroes, they face discrimination and live in poverty. Connor Reed, played by Robbie Amell, is a powerful young man struggling to pay for his ailing mother's medical treatment. To earn money, he joins a lucrative criminal world led by Garrett, played by Stephen Amell, who teaches him how to sharpen his powers and execute a series of crimes. So it is sort of superhero related, but very, very different to anything you've seen in the Arrowverse, um, where you may have seen Stephen and Robbie before. We sat down with Chris Crane, who's the production designer on this, and uh, he wasn't the production designer on the original short, but he, he is the production designer designer on the movie so we talk a little bit about that and how it is coming in and uh, dealing with the designs because they they want to kind of honor the stuff that was in the original short also shooting in toronto creating a sort of real world feel it was really fascinating the short is brilliant i haven't actually watched the movie yet but it's one that i'm definitely going to watch over the holidays here's the interview with chris crane <laughs> 
lovely to have you on to chat because Code 8 is a film that I've been hearing about for seeming like years mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. on and off because of uh, the connections with Stephen and Robbie Abel and they made the short and then they put it on it was Indiegogo wasn't it they put it on and it got like two millions worth of funding for Indiegogo to make the full movie so how did you get involved with it? Um, well the sidetrack to that I actually met with Jeff Chan the director to years prior to us shooting uh, the principal photography um, on for the short version of it. It was originally supposed to be shot in Toronto and then there were some issues and so they ended up shooting it in LA instead, uh, which, you know, normally happens the reverse. So that yeah. kind of, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, whatever. And then some years passed and I had an interview coming up for Code 8 and I didn't remember the name or anything from the short and then Jeff Chan was like, oh, Jeff, I, I, I've, I've met Jeff before. So I met with him and was, and I read the script and realized what it was and watched the short and was like, oh, that's so interesting. That was a short I met with him for um but the story had changed quite a bit from what i had uh, read yeah um and it would looked great and i you know i was excited about the project and i liked that they wanted to shoot it in toronto and um yeah we met and we clicked again right away and uh, he liked i had a presentation package of kind of my ideas based on the short and based on the script of what i thought could work you know visually for the show and had a good interview and then you know i was working at the time so i went back to that job and then was just kind of waiting to hear about it and then uh, got the call and i think i got the call on a thursday and i started on a monday so <laughs> Good job you did do some work beforehand. Then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's kind of interesting because, like you say, the short is shot in LA. And if you've watched the short, you'll, you know, if anybody out there has watched the short, they'll know that it looks very LA. I mean, there's palm trees and everything. So, having to then make Toronto look m- more like LA, I guess, was that falling under your remit? I think they were more going for like, like a old steel town or kind of like a right. middle America, a Rust Belt kind of place in the first place. Right. Uh, so we didn't really have to worry about, I mean, in the end it was a, it's weird. It rained a lot that summer we shot here, <laughs> but it was also quite sunny too. It was, it was one or the other. And we got a lot of, of that kind of look still from the short. It was the same cinematographer, yeah. um, Alex Dizenhoff. So the look was consistent. You just, I guess there's no palm trees when you're in the kind of slightly nicer neighborhoods, but it just, yeah, we, our goal was, so it didn't look like anywhere in particular, like anything with the Toronto skyline there, they, they adjusted and added buildings and, you know, made it kind of its own place. So it was never about, I guess, trying to make it look like LA. It was just sort of like, that's really shot. And I like the feel of it too, you know, the sun, the sort of dryness of it. And some of the like the sad plaza that they sit out in front of, we kind of did a version of that here waiting for work. So I like, right. I like that aspect of it, but yeah, I never felt like we had to kind of worry about that aesthetic. So, so that was good. Cause there's, not a lot of palm trees here. No, no, that's that's true. I don't think they last very long. <laughs> no. <laughs> the film is set in this kind of slightly alternate future. So as a production designer, what are you doing to kind of highlight that? And uh, how was your approach to it? Well, early on, uh, you know, whenever anyone said future, because, you know, I'd say it to Jeff Chan, the director would always remind us it's not like futuristic. It's he's no. like, it's five seconds in the future. So it's sort of like, you know, I just did more research on like what tech was really on, you know, on the cusp now, which was now two years ago, you know, everyone having those at home um, you know, Wi-Fi camera systems and, and the slickness of a lot of, you know, the uh, cameras and, and like just just any devices that were kind of about to become more mainstream. Yeah. And maybe we added our own little version of it. Uh, so it always felt like try to make it grounded in reality so that someone watching it, you know, can still feel like it's maybe, again, an alternate version of their reality instead of a totally different place. But having a little fun with with some of the tech just to sort of show that, you know, they're a little more advanced than we are. But again, never too crazy. Like, 
you know, we never had a, a self-driving car, let's say. Um, a lot of the p- cars and police cars and things are just a little bit more normal so that I guess people could relate to them, especially with sort of the, the robot tech um, police. Yeah. It was a way to kind of, we always tried to balance the, the tech part of it with sort of what would be something, you know, that was a little bit more relatable. So that was kind of fun. Because again, sometimes we'd push it and Jeff would be like, no, 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 just five seconds, just five seconds. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. So, so it was good to have a, to think of that and to sort of explain that to people too on set because sometimes like, oh, it's the future. It's like, well, not really. So, <laughs> so people wouldn't have to worry too much about, you know, making sure everything looked, I guess, again, like untouchable futuristic. So, so it was interesting to, it was nice to balance that and not just, again, be, like I said, self-driving cars and everything's automated and everything's voice activated. It was still a little bit like they still worked with, with regular things. So, so that was good. Yeah. And I mean, let, let's face it, the police are probably the last people to get like, self-driving cars when they do that. So. Yes. <laughs> um, they do have drones though, which yes. we, we saw in the, uh, short and the the robot police which is a a great moment in that short those are obviously established in the short film which you didn't do how did you approach sort of tweaking bits and pieces for that are they sort of as they were or have you added and and amended stuff well it was really i mean a really great thing about code 8 was it was sort of like the movie in a good way by committee it was a lot of different people coming together with different ideas it was always about what's the best way to do this what works and play fight who did all the visual effects on the short, they ended up continuing on and they tweaked some of their ideas. And we had sort of like a, a meeting where I got to participate, which was, you know, very great because I've, you know, the, a lot of stuff I work on VFX is usually done after the fact. So there yeah. might be some discussions and we can give them some graphics and references, but it's never really, um, you know, there's never usually the budget to have everybody on the show. Uh, but with Code 8, because they were also producers on it, they had such a hand in everything. So it was great to interact with them and have discussions with them and see what their ideas were and what we could do with with wardrobe uh, through the costume department or with props to try to help work with what they did in the end what the original concept in the short was I think they're in uh, real clothes and then they did green screen uh, heads and hands and then they overlaid uh, but for the feature we tried to do the same thing but in the end I think they had to overlay everything so right. even though but the good they said it was good because at least they had the movement of the clothing and things like that but yeah. that's quite a bit more uh, work than I would was expecting but I yeah. you know I couldn't tell the difference watching it and i think that just helped streamline the look mm. um but yeah I've, i knew coming on to it especially with the short being popular i never wanted to go against the short i never wanted to reinvent it i basically liked it myself and i mm. wanted to take what worked in that bring it in um to the future and then add to that world because the short was sort of just a slice of it yeah so it was nice to add more to it and again like we had the drones and the police but like what was the police station like what were, you know what else could we add or take away from the cars so that was kind of the fun it was nice having a little bit of a blueprint because i've never had that before something that kind of had again a following a bit of a fan base um kickstarter that was you know that successful for it and i think they still ran it while we were doing it as well so it was yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Like a lot of the people that participated in, um, you know, contributing money came out, you know, on different shoot days for uh, meet and greets to be in a big extra scene. So to see them so excited for like the signage that we made or certain props, it was, it was cool. It was like, I've never been on something, like I said, that kind of already had fans. So that was, that was very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, you know, 
the Apple Boys have fans outside of the uh, the film stuff as well because oh, yes. they love doing this sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I mean, obviously they're well known on TV shows like Arrow and Flash and Tomorrow People and other things. So they've been dealing with powers before, but in a very mm-hmm. different way. This is a much darker thing, I think. Um, but just from the color palette more than anything else, how was your approach to sort of keeping it kind of real? I guess with those fantastical elements going on around it. Um. Well, first of the package I made just based on the script, that was sort of the initial blueprint to sort of giving the two sort of factions a sort of those that generally didn't have powers, but were part of the police or lived in the nicer neighborhoods. We mm-hmm. kind of came up with, you know, it's a little more modern, a little less plant life, a little less organic. And then those uh, like Connor uh, played by Robbie Mel, who are kind of maybe have powers. Some of them don't, uh, but are a little more disenfranchised or it's hard to get a job because of their abilities. People see it as a negative because it could cause problems. It was a little more, uh, you know, messy colors a little more in the the oranges and the yellows and the reds yeah a little more everything was more aged we had more graffiti um but so when we were location scouting we would kind of use that as a guide now again we never always you know stuck with it whether it was we found something really cool we wanted to shoot at or there were just um sometimes we just you know couldn't find the thing we really wanted and so we had to you know compromise and find somewhere where we could do a bit of a build onto it or or add something or take something away um but it was sort of using always being able to go back to that palette or to those looks and ideas and again we could stray from them it wasn't the rule but to sort of have that as the baseline when you watch the film you can kind of see the difference and i kind of wanted to show why people just the difference of the lives that these people are leading and we didn't get a ton of people that were you know personal lives with the police and things like that but so i really wanted to when we did see some of that show the difference there um, just because it was yeah. fun to do, right? To brand this Lincoln City and to make sure that, you know, we had our own license plate system because we were kind of in nowhere in particular. It wasn't like it was America or Canada. It was just kind of its own sort of state. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure, you know, signage and, and having our own branding throughout was was really fun to do. Just sort of, again, giving it a little, that's that little bit of the superhero in there was the whole Lincoln City branding. But again, trying to make things look realistic and, and make signs and things uh, as real as they could be, but still be in our kind of our fake little world. Yeah. Do you have a favorite either object or, or scene from uh, the film that you created? Um, I think it was, uh, there's a drug in the film uh, called Psych. And so it was fun. Um, our graphic designer, Stu Pierce, came up with the logo. So it was fun playing with the logo for that. And that was its branding. And I, I can't remember if it was scripted or not, but we were like, well, how do we, you know, designate that this is that thing constantly, right? Hmm. So it was fun to kind of just have that throughout. Um, also, the graf- a lot of the graffiti it sort of carries through the sort of messages of those sort of like, uh, you know, like pro power, we called it. Um, just having that even just in the background, uh, just, just having sort of, like I said, little throwbacks within the film itself to this world building. That was really fun to, to keep creating as, as much as we could within the time constraints we had. And like, there's a, a large scene we shot on one street in Toronto that we had to go back a couple weekends to do. So, you know, everything has to go up and everything has to come down yeah. and just making sure we were, it was consistent to making sure as many of the signs or changes we could and street signs. And it was, it was fun to just sort of check off those details constantly. Just so knowing that if someone really liked the film or really cared about the story and really liked this world, they could see the little Easter eggs within it and always be like, Oh, cool. They, you know, we paid that much attention to the details. So, so that's <laughs> what we were trying to go for constantly. It was like always paying attention to the details and make it interesting for someone to watch. Yeah. It's, it's always great when you can just spot little things in the background, the more you watch it, it's fabulous. Well, that's what I love about movies and TV shows is, is like, again, when people take that care. So I tried on this to, to bring it as much as we could to it. Yeah. What was your biggest challenge 
putting this together? I think it was, sometimes it was locations just because again, we had this idea in our head of the type of film it was and where we wanted to do things and just um, restrictions of time. Like you can't move around, you know, to three different places in one day, you kind of have to stick to Mm. one or two. And then even the next day, you don't want to go too far. So it was finding the right locations that might not have worked on the onset. And then, you know, Alex or Jeff being like, how could this work? And me being, okay, let's figure this out. And so, you know, doing partial builds within locations or, or cover-ups and things like that and just trying to make it work. That was always fun because I, I come from the indie world. So I like a little bit of a challenge and I like a little bit of a like, how do we pull this off kind of thing. I almost am, don't know what I would do if I, you know, had millions and millions and millions of dollars to do crazy huge builds from scratch. <laughs> I'm just so used to kind of having to like compromise constantly. So I know you probably compromise on those big shows too, because you can't do anything you want, but no. like example, like I love umbrella Academy and just the production design on that show is, uh, is yeah. incredible. And no you know, they have the, they have the time and the money to do it the way they want to do it. And to me, that's a version. It really shows, but yeah. other shows sometimes you're like, I can't believe they had that much money. Cause it just doesn't really, you know what I mean? It doesn't come yeah, yeah. through. So, uh, so for me, it was us getting the value out of these locations, uh, and, and out of the limitations that we had in trying to make something really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love stuff like the Umbrella Academy as well. That was uh Mark Worthington, I think was the production designer on that. We actually interviewed him a few back in August. We interviewed him. Oh, so. that's awesome. Yeah. I met him. We did a little, a little, uh, in, like a, we were nominated for DGC awards right. uh, in our union. And we did a, a little chat and I got to meet him and there, uh, I live in Hamilton, which is just outside of Toronto now. Right. And that they were shooting on a street there and doing it as like, like kind of like a period 60s street on and off all summer. So it was cool to like go to that street and have lunch while I was working in that part of town and just sort of sit in the sixties world, <laughs> you know, with cars and BG and buildings. Wow. And it was just like, cool, this is fun. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I think sometimes putting restrictions on, onto the, the budgets of things actually makes for a more interesting creative outcome. Whilst you always think, oh, well, it wouldn't it be great to have loads of money to, to be able to do whatever I want. I think sometimes if you actually put restrictions on things, it can actually make it better. So, And I think if everyone's on the same page too, about, you know what I mean? Because I've done shows where there are restrictions, but the expectations are different for everybody. And so yeah. I don't always think the outcome, like for me, Code 8 is one of my you know favorite experiences I've ever had. And we did reshoots last summer for it, which was, again, it was like a mini version of, of it's like you can't, it usually don't get to go back again, right, to something. And so mm. to be able to do that was kind of fun <laughs> to bring most of the same team back and to be in, in the summer again in Toronto and uh, revisiting some of the locations. It was like, it was really nice. And so for me, everyone was willing to compromise together and, and come up with the best solution versus like I said, I've been on jobs where everyone's not going to compromise, but I have to. And you're like, okay, yeah. well, this isn't what we talked about, or this isn't going to look as good as you hope. Or, And for me, there's nothing worse than not delivering. So I just like that everybody was on the same page on Code 8 in general, just about, and the vibe was always so positive too. Yeah. And I mean, I, obviously I've, I've seen the trailer and I've seen the short, but from the little bits I've seen, it looks spectacular for something which doesn't have a huge budget for it. I mean, in Hollywood movie <laughs> circles, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, and again, I, mean, I think if everyone like believes in the project equally, you know what I mean? It's like, mm. it really gets the result you want. And I think like, I, I like doing indie stuff, but I do think, you know, sometimes you do need more money to do things properly. But I think Code 8 was a situation where we all, especially because again, a lot of fans had put money into it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like some uh, faceless corporation, you know, making something that was going to be merchandise. It was actually something people believed in. Mm. So that really gave us the, I guess, the excitement to to pull it off. Yeah. And and when you've got some people like Stephen and Robbie 
involved as well. They're, they're very much, you know, fans facing actors. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess they want to make sure that they, I mean, of course, they, most actors want to make sure they're doing a good job. But those guys in particular, because they're at at conventions and, you know, fans will let yeah, you know. And, they know, and, they, <laughs> and they know that people believe, you know, mostly believed in the project, not just for, you know, what Jeff and Chris Perret put together, but also yeah. because of them. Right. So yeah. it's it's not just a, an actor for hire. It's people that have more invested in the project. So they would definitely put in that extra bit of care. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, what are you moving on to next? Um, I'm currently on a sketch comedy series called okay. Baroness Von Sketch. It's uh, it's in its fifth season. Cool. Um, I knew people who worked on it for years. And then uh, I, w- I finally watched all of it uh, earlier this year and was like, I love the show. So when they contacted me about coming on board, I was really excited. And then I have, a few things I did this year, uh, a, sh- a movie called uh, Clifton Hill. I think it's been renamed Disappearance at Clifton Hill, yes. which is at TIFF. Uh, that's coming out, I think, in the spring right. or late winter. So I'm excited for that. That was another like that was a very much a labor of love project. And it was one of those we went in thinking, oh, we'll shoot in Niagara Falls, like on location, you know, not a lot of money. And because Niagara Falls was not happy to have us there, we ended up doing a lot of builds, wow. a lot of which was great for me because it meant yeah. we got to be more creative and again, hit the marks we wanted to hit. But it was like not expected either. So it was kind of a little bit like, OK, cool. Now we can do this, but now we have no time. So what do we do? <laughs> Uh, so that was really great. And then um, Run This Town was just at South by Southwest. That's hopefully coming out too around the same time in the spring. Oh, and then in Canada on Crave TV, which is a, one of our um, a digital platforms from Bell Media, a series I did called New Eden is coming out, an eight episode fake 1990s documentary about a 1970s all-female cult. So <laughs> that'll come out on New Year's Day for anyone in Canada listening. And that one I'm really excited to see done. It's a very dark comedy, so... I'm really excited about that one. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. It'll be intriguing to see whether that makes it over here. We get some Canadian stuff, not all of it, but we, we do get some, some stuff. You might. It it's it's just weird enough. And they have a lot of amazing like comedians and local talent that are starting to bridge over there. And yeah. as well as uh, I think some of the characters are technically American. Like it's sort of about a bunch of people that go to uh, rural BC. So they're, I don't know. We'll see. It's, it's, it's a very, well, you guys get Letterkenny. And so I th- that was yeah. a creative show too. So I think right. it's in that vein of, sort of odd, uh, interesting comedy. So hopefully it makes it over because it's, it's very funny, but very dark. Yeah. We're not short of like streaming services and channels at this point. No, 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 you're not. So, you know, um, okay, great. There's a couple of final questions that we always ask everybody. So they're always the same. First question is what TV shows are you watching at the moment? I'm actually watching the crown. Of course, uh, I, yeah. I've been so busy, but I finally sat down to watch that. And then, oh, the toys that made us. Oh yeah, uh, they, they put some new episodes up, so I just watched the Power Rangers one this weekend. <laughs> I'm trying to save those because there's only four. Um, and then I'm still I, I, I finished off all the Marvel Netflix shows except for the new Jessica Jones. I think I'm just saving it yeah. as a sad little goodbye to that whole that whole world that I was you know had some yeah. problems with, but was quite invested in. Yes. Um, yeah. And then I think oh, I'm trying to. There's a bunch of shows I'm waiting to watch just because they're a bit darker and working crazy hours and you know getting up really early and getting home really late it's sort of you want very you want lighter fare let's say yeah so understandable I'm, I'm saving a bunch of stuff for the future and also <laughs> i'm excited like you know I, I probably will subscribe to disney plus and see what's going on there and maybe some apple tv like i feel like i'll, I'll subscribe to all of them and then sort of figure out what i like best yeah and maybe trim it down a bit but um that's kind of what i've been doing 
right now. Yeah, I've been I've been loving Apple TV so far. Morning show is great. Okay. For all mankind is again a sort of out world thing, but it's set in the historical past. So you know, mm-hmm. so there's that. And C is the other one, and I I want to get the production designer for C on because that's a fascinating thing to have worked on. Okay, because <laughs> that's that's I'll have to set, check it out. That's set in a world where everybody's blind essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's figuring out how they pieced all that together. So that looked really interesting. So last question, if you had the opportunity to work on any TV show, past, present or future, what show would it be? Ooh, it would be Twin Peaks, hands down, thousand percent. (laughs) I love that show. Well, you know, it was in reruns when I was in grade eight. So in like the late mid 90s, I guess. And I'd never heard of, you know, I heard of it through my parents. I think I saw a couple bits of episodes in 1990 when I was very little and they scared the crap out of me. (laughs) And uh, and then I I started in the middle of it. so I never even saw it in order. Uh, yeah. So when people are like, oh, we hate season two, I was like, that's what I watched first. So <laughs> I, in a way, found season one almost boring going back right. the first time because I was so used to the crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that show just for me, it's, it's you know, every couple of years, I just breeze through it again. And I just finding out more about the production designer on that who did the series on the pilot and uh, how much creativity he was given because they had no time. Yeah. You know, went from being in Washington State to L.A. and just having to like pull everything together and, and, and coming up with the crazy ideas and, you know, playing more like there was no like, oh, we don't like that. It's like throw a chainsaw as a lamp, like go to town. <laughs> I, th- I Yeah, that's that show. I just think it's it's just so iconic and so interesting looking. And it gave a whole weird 50s, 60s aesthetic to the rest of the 90s that didn't really might not have even been there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was watching the I didn't I'm not going to lie. I didn't love the new the new season as much. Yeah. I know it's you're not supposed to love it. I think that's kind of on purpose. <laughs> but I, I, I really like to harken back to the first two seasons for that one. That would be the show. There's probably a couple other ones, but that one's I think like that'll be the one always good choice good choice all right well it's been lovely to have you on and uh, have a chat through it i'm very much looking forward to seeing the film when it comes out uh, and uh, good luck with the uh, the other shows as well thank you so much hopefully we'll get to talk again soon anytime and, and if you let me know what you think of code eight once you see it i will do cheers okay, have a good day yeah. bye. bye so that was the interview with chris crane the production designer on code eight code eight as i said is out now you can get it on amazon uh, you can go and buy it on there there are various other places i'm sure you can find it as well but I will link to it on Amazon on the post so you can find it quite easily. Also go and watch the short that is up on YouTube right now. That's everything we've got for you this week. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. We will be back in the new year with normal shows once again. Have a great Christmas. Have a great new year. I'll see you soon. Bye bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.